So Jay, did you see the X-Men Red announcement? Tom Taylor and Mahmoud Azrar? Jean Grey leading a team? Hell yeah, I did. I know, right? What do you think of the lineup? You know, I am mostly for it, but there is one addition that really leaves me baffled. Trinary? She's a new character. No, no, no. Trinary is just fine. I'm good with Trinary. No, I'm talking about Namor's shirt. Oh, yeah, that is a weird addition. Right? Wait, didn't his last costume also have a top? Yeah, but that was a hella deep v-neck. Miles, Abslantis will not be denied. At least not unless something is really seriously wrong, and I'm talking like 1950s amnesia beard levels of wrong. One sec, are you saying that Namor had a beard? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, he got amnesia, he shacked up with Bucky Barnes. Wait, like kissing shacked up? I mean, maybe? Well, canonically, they were just amnesia bros. How'd he get better? Bucky or Namor? Namor. I don't care about Bucky. Oh, um, Johnny Storm helped him remember his true identity. Seriously? How? Burned off his beard, then chucked him in a river. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 173 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to part two of two of the end of the 80s. But first, welcome to some kind of cool news about present-day X-Men. Well, and in general, man, I gotta say, I am I am having a hell of a time focusing on X-Men today. Entirely reasonable. I will link to the reason for that in the uh, visual companion to this episode. I'm not going to talk about it on the podcast, but suffice to say, um, it's work that I've been doing for on and off for about the last three years that finally kind of came to fruition, and I'm really proud of it. And it has significantly dominated my um, my life for the last couple of weeks. Fair enough, and also really, really nice work. But now, X-Men Red. X-Men Red, right, because the two core X-Books have been X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold, which makes sense. I mean, the 90s had Blue Team and Gold Team. X-Men Red, there's no analog color-wise, but we've heard that Jean Grey, like the adult Jean Grey that died in Grant Morrison's run, uh, she's coming back. We know that. And apparently she's also going to lead a new team book written by Tom Taylor, who's one of our favorite current X-Men writers. Well, and with art by Mahmoud Azrar, who is one of our current favorite X-Men artists. This is one hell of a creative team, and I'm, I'm really, really excited for that. But let's, speaking of teams, let's talk the lineup, because they just announced that today. Uh, remember, episodes get recorded a while before they go on the air, so this is this is technically Monday, November 13th that we're, we're discussing this. Yeah, so Jean Grey's leading the team, like we said. So this is adult Jean Grey in sort of a, a variant of her 90s cartoon-era costume. Is this her occupying Emma Frost's body or incarnated in her own? Maybe. I mean, I'm thinking it's her own body because she is being literally resurrected, apparently, but eh, who knows? Comics are complicated. Well, and the term literally gets used varying degrees of literally, too. And it's Jean Grey. And also, man, the title of this series intrigues me because there's the obvious thing it's a reference to, which is that Red was Jean's nickname for a long time, but there's also sort of a whole set of implications in terms of the tone of the book. Yeah, I know. Uh, it just makes me think of the old Extreme X-Men where they all wore black leather with the red sunglasses, but I doubt that's relevant. But anyway, lineup-wise, so we have Nightcrawler, who has been an X-Men gold, so that's a thing. We have Namor, who, like you mentioned, he's got a shirt. What's up with that? Well, Tom Taylor has officially announced on Twitter that we will be seeing his abs on a regular basis. 
So I feel at least tentatively okay about this. I've, I've, again, I was talking about this on Twitter fairly extensively from my personal account. And my position is that I'm okay with his basic costume involving a fairly, fairly concealing shirt, as long as he rips it off at least once per issue. While yelling Imperious Rex. Obviously. Right. So then we also have some more surprising characters. We have Gentle, who is a Wakandan mutant. He was in the old new X-Men run where all the characters died all the time. He apparently was a major character in X-Men Worlds Apart, which I've never read. What are his powers? Uh, he gets really, really strong, but it, like, fucks him up super hard every time he does, and it's gradually killing him. He actually has vibranium tattoos on his body to, like, hold it together and keep him alive. That's a really interesting take, and it's one that's at least a little bit evocative of Strong Guy. A little bit, yeah, but Strong Guy's, uh, sort of compensation was to cover the pain with humor, just like Puck from Alpha Flight. Gentle's whole deal is he became a pacifist for a long time, and he got pulled out of that during that one Limbo story that involved Pixie getting part of her soul sucked out by the different version of Lyanna Rasputin. So what you're telling me is that Gentle is yet another thing that was eventually wrecked by Inferno. That's exactly what I'm saying, yes. I feel so good about this. So there's two more characters who I'm really excited to see in a team book, and those are Wolverine and Gabby. Wolverine being, of course, best Wolverine Laura Kinney, and Gabby being baby best Wolverine. I'm really excited. I mean, we've seen Tom Taylor write them super, super well in all new Wolverine, and so having them be A, on a team, and B, still together, like, that's great. Oh man, so I found out today that apparently there are a lot of people who really hate Gabby, and I would like to state officially as the position of this podcast that those people are objectively wrong and should be ashamed of themselves. Seriously, their opinion is bad and they should feel bad. Gabby's amazing. I love her a lot. Gabby is so good and she's such a good foil for Laura and vice versa. And she's, oh God, she's just really great. And I'm really happy to see them still together. And I'm also really happy to see Marvel stepping in the direction of legitimizing Laura further as Wolverine by putting her on as many teams as possible. That's nice to see, especially with Logan having just come back to life in that, uh... Forget Logan. Fuck Logan. I don't care about <laughs> Logan anymore. Laura forever. Yup. Yeah. And then we have this new character, Trinary. Now, my theory is that she's a less confident but more optimistic canary. Because, like, can-ary, try, you know, Yoda would have some stuff to say. Eh? Eh? Okay, so what I initially got was, was her as sort of a sequel to Binary. Uh, yeah, the Carol Danvers persona that she was using back when she was running around with the X-Men doing space stuff. Either way, I'm really curious to see where she goes. I'm really excited about this book just based on the lineup and the creative team. And yeah, this is this is going to be interesting. I have mixed feelings about the costumes. They're very armory and kind of 90s evocative ways that I have mixed feelings about, but intrigued to see where they go, especially if where Namor's goes is off. Because again, Abslantis will not be denied. Imperious Rex! Anyway, we have some comics to tell you about that actually came out uh, much earlier than X-Men Red, which is not out yet. But which are at least evocative of, or at least vaguely leading into the 1990s. And that is the second half of the Muir Island saga, which is basically the end of the Claremont era of X-Men. But this being part two of two of a story, let's throw in a... Previously in the Muir Island saga... The X-Men rescued Professor X from some scrolls in space, and Banshee told him how evil and sexy things had gotten on Muir Island. Professor X realized that only his old enemy, the telepathic Shadow King, could create such evil sexiness, and so Professor X headed back to Earth with the team. After stealing Excalibur's Blackbird, Professor X and his X-Men assaulted Muir Isle, fighting its evil and sexy denizens and mostly getting possessed themselves by the Shadow King, until Forge used some ill-defined and frequently varied technology to depossess some of them. 
They found the Shadow King's connection to the physical world, which was Polaris, Lorna Dane, whose powers had gotten very confusing, so sure, why not? Let's just go for it. Unfortunately, they didn't know how to sever Polaris's link to the Shadow King without killing her. Meanwhile, Professor Xavier skipped town and found his original students, X-Factor, who were still slightly traumatized by the endgame storyline. Okay, wait, wait, wait. To be fair, slightly traumatized is basically the default state of Professor X's original students by this point. Valid point, but they did go with Charlie to Muir Isle to help out. After Federal Agent Valerie Cooper revealed herself to really have been Mystique and destroyed the Shadow King's human host, the corpse of Jacob Rees, the Shadow King possessed Professor X's son, Legion. Who then blew up the whole damned island, which is where we left off. So that's a thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a four-part story. Technically, the fifth part is just an epilogue. And I feel kind of weird about having done the first three parts in one go and the last in another. But I really love leaving things on giant explosions, so I'm not that guilty. I also feel like this is a story that reasonably we had to break into two parts to discuss the way we wanted to. Because on one hand, yeah, it's relatively few issues. We could have crammed it into one episode. But on the other hand, it is the end of the first long volume of X-Men. It's the end of the Claremont era, and it's effectively when the X books, the X series, and the X line layout that we knew changes radically. And we got to have time to talk about that. It's also just kind of generally continuity baffling. It is. And part of that is because, like we mentioned last episode, Chris Claremont left the writing duties halfway through. It doesn't fully make sense. It contradicts itself with some regularity. Yeah, on Uncanny X-Men, we've got Fabian Ocesa, who is trying very hard to fill Claremont's shoes and not quite succeeding yet, although he is doing an, he's, he's making an admirable attempt. And he'll totally just get better and better and better. Yeah, I mean, I think Ocesa ultimately is going to do his best work when he's writing as himself, but riffing off other writers. He's a very, very fun writer, and I'm really looking forward to getting into his run on X-Force, where he's, he's not really trying to pick up mid-series for someone else. And speaking of creative teams, the fourth part of the Muir Island saga, which is Uncanny X-Men number 280, on art we have Andy Hubert, once again, who's a good artist, very 90s, I don't think that's a bad thing, and also Stephen Butler doing some of it. The cover is still by Jim Lee, because Jim Lee has to get in as much 90s stuff as possible. Yeah, Jim Lee is nigh-ubiquitous at this point. Pretty much. So, shall we dive into the plot? So, like we mentioned in the previously on, Legion blew up a whole bunch of the island at the end of the issue, and that's where we start out. Much of the surface of Muir Isle has been devastated, and there's a big goddamn crater in the middle. Luckily, all of our protagonists are just fine, because the underground part of Muir Isle is still intact. Okay, so between this right here and the X-Mansion's fate at the end of Inferno, should the X-Teams only build stuff underground? That part always seems to be intact. I feel like if they took that approach, you'd end up with mole people as their main villains over time, and that they're building above ground stuff is basically a means of offsetting that potential fate. That's entirely reasonable. I mean, I think it might be Morlocks instead of mole people, but maybe the mole people would show up inevitably after a while. No, I am 100% certain that it would be mole people. Mole people it is. You heard it here first. So... Professor Xavier, before we find out what happened to all of the mutants, just showed up on the island himself with a few shield espers, like ESP-ers. I always love that term. I always just picture the Final Fantasy VI things. 
Oh, I know, right? Like, Maduin and the original Ketchi and stuff. Oh, that was such a great game. Yeah, and, like, Terra's Esper form, which is so cool. She gets all pink and naked and has a lightsaber because you always equip the Atma weapon because it looks super awesome. No, but she's also just a super badass energy being. Like, she's naked, but she's also just made of energy, so it's not a thing. It's cool. Totally. Also, it's 16-bit, so there you go. But no, even in the concept art, it's super awesome. It really is. Well, I mean, the concept art is Yoshitaka Amano, so of course. I love his work. You know, I worked on, like, all those books. I know! <laughs> so cool! Anyway, Xavier and his not Final Fantasy espers head onto the island, and they're wearing these, like, psi suits, which are basically orange-armored 90s spacesuits with a bunch of unnecessary gadgets sort of stapled to them. This is actually the kind of sciencey nonsense I absolutely buy. You can wear a cool orange spacesuit that makes you immune to telepathy that has, like, a big fishbowl space helmet. Okay, yeah, yeah that, that seems reasonable. Why not just wear Magneto hats? Because Magneto has all of those. And he's very litigious. He would sue. You know, you'd think they could make, like, off-brand knockoff Magneto hats. If I could find off-brand knockoff Magneto rubber ducks, for fuck's sake, come on. That is perhaps a valid point. Thank you. But regardless, that's not what they did. And it doesn't take them long to find Legion, who, of course, is the current host of the Shadow King. Legion is Professor Xavier's son. So this stings a little extra bit, as is the fact that the X-Men are hovering around him like the end of It. The end of what? It. Like, you know, Stephen King's It with the clown. I am pointedly unfamiliar with that in any iteration. I'm really sorry, popular culture. I have old, weird associations with it, and I never actually consumed it. Sorry. Oh, well... For what it's worth, the new movie's actually really good. Well, it was, the thing is, it was one of the books in my grandmother's old house, in that bedroom. Oh, the ones that scared you a lot when you visited? Yeah, okay, so, so a bit of necessary backstory, listeners. Um, my late maternal grandmother, who's the only one I really think of as having because she was the only one who was alive during my lifetime, was a huge horror fan, and especially a huge Stephen King fan. And her book collection pretty much spilled throughout the house. And when I visited her, we stayed in my mom's old bedroom, which was in, in the downstairs. It was a split level house and mom's bedroom was off the rec room. But in it, there was this, this shelf of mostly granny's horror novels. And I don't know if you've ever looked at the spines of horror novels, y'all, but they are creepy as hell. They usually don't have the full cover illustration, but you, they've usually got some horrifying bit of it, usually debossed on the cover. And there were a bunch and they were super fucked up. And I used to stay up at night and carefully look away from them, but stay awake and or stare at them, but with, and or like face them. Like I had, I had all sorts of like specific based around these horror novels, sleeping configurations as a very, very small child. But the point is this simultaneously <laughs> led to the development of some kind of weird specific grudges and aversions against a bunch of horror novels and also kind of desensitization to a lot of the imagery in them. That makes a lot of sense. No, I get it. I mean, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but there was this copy of Bram Stoker's Dracula that was on my bookshelf that I got from my, my dad when I was a kid. And he, there was this, like, portrait of Dracula on the cover, and his skin was blue, and he was in profile, and he had a big white mustache. But he was sort of looking to the side at the, the reader, at the person holding the book. And I got halfway through the book and got to the part where Jonathan Harker was sneaking into Dracula's bedroom to try to kill him with a shovel. And I got so scared that I hid the book behind my bookshelf for, like, the next four years. On one hand, I identify with that. But on the other hand, I've seen that book and I recognize that like kid judgment is really specific and what's creepy when you're, when you're, you know, seven or eight or nine isn't what's creepy when you're whatever age I was when I saw that. But I just don't see what's so scary about it. You know, if you're a kid, you're scared of what you're scared of. I'm still terrified of plungers after that one episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? No, I mean, I was super, super scared of this one um, pop-up book of insects. There was this one specific page of a caterpillar 
that apparently I was just horrified by as a young toddler. I don't remember this at all for the record, but I've been told this story enough that I have probably falsely constructed memories based around it, or at least remember my parents telling me about it. Um, and I, I would, my parents would read this to me and I'd just grab the page and flip past it really fast. Um, and finally, apparently, like when I was about one, one and a half at this point, I got sick of doing that and just opened it straight to the page and ripped the caterpillar out because it was a pop-up book <laughs> and I could do that. Well done, Tiny J. Right. <laughs> I'm still kind of impressed with toddler me for that. Right? Well, anyway, we thoroughly digress. We should probably talk more about the Shadow King. Fine. He's got teeth. He does, but in this case, he's got Legion as a body who greets Charles Xavier, the father of said body. Hello, Charles. Welcome to what is left of your precious mutant research island. Your dream is ended. Awaken to the nightmare. Damn. Wait, is, isn't Awaken to the Nightmare the title of at least one metal song, or possibly album? I mean, I'm assuming one somewhere. Wait, no, no, no. I just realized what I'm thinking of, which is um, from Yuri on Ice, and it's actually called Welcome to the Madness. Never mind, I am trash. <laughs> well, the X-Men are also trash. Duh. I mean, they're beating all the hell up. They're hovering around the Shadow King, unconscious. Also, Rogue's costume, she is now four for four in terms of having a different costume every issue. In this case, it's a shredded green bikini that I don't think we've seen before. We have totally seen it before. It's what she was wearing in the Savage Land with Magneto. I'm not so sure about that, because that one had some yellow. It looked a little different. I don't know. Yeah, but this is this is something that's come up regularly as an interpretation of it. Like, this specific take on her costume is pretty much Savage Land associated. Well, either way, she apparently has had her costume ripped apart or changed into a ripped apart costume between issues, so have taken a drink? I'm not sure you can make that work. I mean, I'm just gonna go for it. I like excuses to drink. Okay. Well, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, the Espers, freak out and fire their giant guns, which the Shadow King slash Legion, of course, sends right back at them. They're dead. Aw. So, I want to talk a little bit about, about Legion, because we haven't discussed him at much length in a while, and he's got a power set in a situation that I think makes him especially scary as the corporeal avatar of the Shadow King. Totally. He is someone who's got dissociative identity disorder. He's got... And each of his personalities, each of his identities has a different mutation, most of which are violently destructive, or at least potentially so. Yeah, and so having the Shadow King, who's really good at mind stuff, control a guy who's got trouble with mind stuff, but a lot of power, that is worrisome. And I kind of wish they did even more with it. They don't get time, though, because he's going to get taken out this issue. So we should mention, too, that the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents he killed had names. But in another case of sort of, Nusia is a kind of still trying to get his footing, picking up Claremont's, you know, voice, they don't get small, tragic backstories. I know. Um, okay, so Jay, these guys are DeMarco and Heacock. What do you think their tragic backstory should be? Oh, you're saying we should pick up the slack here? Absolutely. All right. Um, so I'm thinking DeMarco and Heacock joined, jo joined S.H.I.E.L.D. together or, or, or talked about joining S.H.I.E.L.D. together for years. They, they maybe were high school bros. They definitely went to college together and were roommates and really worked hard to, to develop skills that would let them not only join S.H.I.E.L.D. together, but function as a team. Like, they had complementary majors and skill sets. They didn't just take all of the same classes. Right, and they were so proud to finally join S.H.I.E.L.D.'s elite Esper unit. This was their first big break. They were going to take down this psychic entity and save the world. They had the equipment. They had the training. It was going to be great. They're also unbeatable at squash. Well, they were, because now 
The Shadow King has ended that potential. Their dreams reached so high and have now fallen into shadow. Aw. Aw. So that's their story. And Xavier is knocked the hell to the ground. Things are going very poorly for our heroes. And listening via radio, Colonel Vashon this time, once again, Rogue keeps changing costumes. His name keeps changing spelling. He's a Russian guy. Wait, wait, do they correlate? Uh, maybe. Every time Rogue changes a costume, his name changes or vice versa. Oh, I wonder if this is like there, there are specific parallel universes like the um, Berenstein Berenstein Bears thing. Oh, right. That's, that's probably totally it. Like there's the Vashon in one costume... Vashin in one costume, uh, Vashkin in another one. Okay, so Vashin corresponds to the green bikini, but right. he readies a nuclear strike. He's been chasing after the Shadow King for a long time. We've seen him in the background of X-Comics for a while, so I get it. And, I mean, it's an overused story trope, the whole the heroes have to defeat the villain quickly or else the good gruff guy is going to send in a nuke, but I think it really does up the tension. I am really uncomfortable with the relatively casual use of nuclear weaponry here. I mean, that's reasonable. Nukes are a big deal, but at least they feel like a big deal here. They are. They're a really big deal. No, they should be a bigger a bigger deal than this. This is this is not something you just go, oh, well, we're losing this fight. Let's nuke it. No, not, not even in the 80s, especially not in the 80s, actually, because Cold War. That happened a lot in the new Battlestar Galactica, too. Well, anyway, the Shadow King slash Legion is about to finish Xavier, who has to throw in one last Claremontism, even though Claremont isn't writing. It can't be. You're corrupting him, body and soul. Nisiza actually scatters Claremontisms fairly liberally, and that makes a lot of sense to me. If you're trying to pick up the end of someone else's run, if you're trying to basically echo their voice, that's going to be one of the first places you go to to evoke them to readers. Totally agreed. Yeah, it works pretty well. But thankfully, suddenly there's a shrakoom. It's Storm, and she's brought the cavalry, in this case, X-Factor and some of the X-Men. Hey, Colossus is here. He exists again. I guess Nisiesa remembered that he was supposed to be here. But Amanda Sefton is still gone. We won't see her for years. Which, to be fair, is kind of an every-other-week thing. She is one of those characters who writers remember almost arbitrarily. Well, the hero's attack works pretty well. Legion is almost killed, and the Shadow King pilots that body back to his nexus, that being Polaris. And he then uses his abilities to send the still-possessed heroes after the not-possessed heroes. So we're going to get some good hero-on-hero -hero action. I mean, I mean, they're going to fight, not like the other thing. Yeah, hero versus hero action is how you want to phrase that, Miles. Probably best to specify. It's good to be precise about these kinds of things. So the heroes have a plan. Professor Xavier is going to confront the Shadow King astrally, as is traditional. And Jean Grey is going to stay and anchor him to the physical world, and she's a little bit nervous about this. My power is so nebulous. I don't know if I'm up to this. It's okay, Jean. This whole storyline is pretty nebulous, so you'll do just fine. Some of the heroes are going to stay to protect Xavier's body. The other heroes are going to go find Polaris and try to figure out a good way to sever the Shadow King's link to her. So this is basically what's currently happening in Astonishing X-Men, right? It's actually pretty similar, yeah. So the current volume of Astonishing X-Men, the one with the Shadow King and a bunch of different psychic realms, it does call back to a whole lot of old stuff, but I think it does it really well. It's actually one of my favorite X-Men books in a while, even though it's just a 12-issue maxi-series. It's been a lot of fun, but it's been really interesting to read as we're going back to the Muir Island saga just because of the extent to which it evokes this very, very specific story. Speaking of things that evoke things, Charles Xavier astrally projects, like was the plan, but the way that's portrayed is we see him naked in space. 
kind of like at the end of Excalibur Weird War 3. But is he giant and a Nazi? Uh, thankfully, very thankfully, he is not. I mean, I guess the giant thing would be fine, but, you know, not the other. Now, this Xavier is somewhat discomfited. The astral plane feels wrong. In his words, It is like putting on an old pair of slippers and finding your toes surrounded by insect larvae. God damn, that is vivid and super gross and uh, impressively done. Possibly a touch too vivid in a this specific metaphor is going to give me weird nightmares. So thanks for that, Fabian. <laughs> the Shadow King appears on the astral plane and both sides armor up, kind of like the Roman-ish armor they used to wear when they fought astrally in the past. Wait, I thought Xavier's astral armor was specifically a reference to samurai armor. I thought it was a specific kind of Roman armor. Uh, is it hoplite? I can't really remember for sure. Um, I'm sure we have many listeners who know all about these sort of things, so uh, enlighten us, please. Classicist listeners, your moment has come, but keep it civil. I remember the time you got in an argument about Latin. <laughs> right. Well, the Shadow King villains at Xavier. I wish to see hatred and anger corrupt the innocent sheep called humanity. I wish to see your life's goal of global harmony dashed. And most cherished of all, I wish to clean my teeth with your bones, drink of your noble blood. I wish to see you suffer and die. The Shadow King can be super boring, but when he's awesome, he's awesome. He, he implies that Xavier's bones are his most cherished possession, which is a little weird. I would also like to see him use the word sheeple so that I can make fun of that. That seems reasonable, but I gotta say, I don't know that my bones are my most cherished possession, but they're up there. No, I yeah, use those are, things. They are fairly important. Mine are fairly important to me as well. I will, I will certainly acknowledge that. And Xavier's are to him, but in the real world, going with the usual principle of what happens in the astral realm happens to you in the real world too, his legs convulse and break, and the rest of him starts doing the same. The Shadow King is bringing Xavier back to the state his body used to be in before it was remade by the Shi'ar after he got a brood queen inside of him. He's not going to be walking again, it looks like. So this is interesting, but it's also kind of weird and uncomfortable. And honestly, I think I'd actually buy it more without the graphic physical injuries. The idea of psychic injuries translating to the physical makes sense and is interesting, but doing it like this reads oddly to me and feels almost like going a little bit too far to ground something that you can effectively hand wave in the real world. I would agree, yeah. I mean, I think it would be even better revenge if the Shadow King, like, went into the realm where Xavier usually dominated, the realm of the psychic, of the mental, and, you know, created some block to make him never able to walk again there. Which, if I recall, was actually what happened when Xavier fought Lucifer. You know, it's one of those things where I've read the story a billion times, but I can never remember because Lucifer is one of the most utterly forgettable X-Men villains ever. Yeah, I will acknowledge that I absolutely may be wrong here because, again, Lucifer is boring as hell. It's a shame. I mean, and in that regard, if Xavier is going to be in a wheelchair again, I guess it's probably for the best that it happened during something more thematically significant. You know, the Shadow King's like Xavier's big nemesis. Lucifer was just a dude with a funny hood. Yeah, this is this is a status quo reversion that I have really mixed feelings about because on one hand, I am all for wider representation of disability and disabled characters in comics. That's cool. And if that were ever handled well with Charles Xavier, I would feel differently about this. But it's an odd move and it's an odd state to retcon to and it's a tangle that 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I am I'm not a fan of how this is played out. And I, I have trouble exactly pinning down why. That's totally fair. And I feel the same way. But in the story, Jean Grey isn't happy about what's going on either. So she makes the call. She's going to bring everybody telepathically into Xavier's minds to help him fight the Shadow King. Xavier is about to be astrally devoured. All of the X-Men and all of X-Factor show up to help, heralded by really tremendous sound effects. We've got a scram from Storm and a classic Zark from Cyclops. Zark is a great sound effect. It's one of my favorites. I know, it's really silly, but it works really well. Unfortunately, in the real world, now that the X-Men are all unconscious, the body of Legion shows up to kill the helpless Xavier. But meanwhile... So there's a team heading into the facility's wreckage, and they, they are the ones who went after the Nexus, who were going to find Polaris and try to unhook her from the Shadow King. And they are attacked by the Possexed Men. See what I did there? I'm really not okay with that term. Oh, well, I am. And they have a great big fight. Um, Iceman inadvertently traps the free Wolverine and possessed Gambit together, and so we see another Wolverine-Gambit duel. We've seen them be rivals basically since they met. Gambit is commenting on how Wolverine is still hurting. This was a big plot point at the time, remember, that Wolverine's healing factor wasn't really working. It's okay. He's got at least one drop of blood left. He'll be fine. Right. But Logan does win the fight using the usual claws outside of Gambit's neck and the third one in the middle maybe being a thing. You're pinned, Creole. Don't ask for the third claw. So Creole is a term that gets thrown at Gambit pretty regularly. Largely, I think, by writers who don't know what it actually means, isn't it? As far as I know, it usually refers to folks of mixed black and European descent, or black and white European descent. It totally does, yeah. So, eh, whoops, but what can you do? You know, on the other hand, that kind of raises the point that it would have been really, really cool if they'd maybe actually gone in that direction with Gambit. Yeah, yeah, that would be. So Moira McTaggart shows up to shoot Banshee out of the sky and is about to finish him, but Forge uses his confusing technology to block the Shadow King from her mind, and for the first time in ages, she is mentally herself again. What Moira says. I, I, Sean? Ah, Sean, my love, I feel, it's been so long, I, I'm so sorry. And Banshee, who's a fairly chill dude, decides that it's all okay, and possession is a thing that happens sometimes, so they're good. The fight continues, with victories on both sides, until Forge uses his synaptic scrambler on Psylocke and forces her psychic knife into the head of the captive Polaris. Everybody always forgets what a badass Forge is, but he totally is one. Yeah, on one hand, he's, a, he's the nerd tech head. On the other hand, his entire background is as a fairly ruthless soldier. Seriously. And it's pretty effective because elsewhere, in the Astral Plane, the Shadow King dissipates. The Shadow King has been destroyed, at least for the moment. Yeah, he is comic book dead, which means he's going to be back eventually, but it's not going to be for a pretty long time. Legion is also off the table for now, although he will be back much sooner. But yeah, he falls, comatose, unconscious, seemingly without a mind. Xavier is understandably pretty troubled and pretty upset. I feel David's mind simply wink out. I reach for my son. It's too late. I would weep for him were there time, but there was never time for David. And I must guide my students out of danger and into the light. Charles Xavier has been narrating much of this, this issue. Most of the captions are him and 
that really works for me. I mean, this is a climax of so much of X-Men, and it's a climax where they fight Xavier's big villain, who they keep emphasizing is one of the reasons he thought the X-Men were necessary, and so that works for me. I mean, yeah, he's been in space for a really long time at this point. We haven't seen a lot of him, but in a lot of ways, he's the core of the X-Men, and if you're doing a back-to-basics approach, having Xavier be central to that, I think is a damn good call. Yeah, I absolutely agree, and I'm going to talk about this a little more in context of the conclusion of this arc, in context of the next issue, but... I think Xavier's voice in the Muir Island saga works much better than it often does. In fact, in general, I think that when we can actually see Xavier's perspective, he's a much more interesting character because we get those good intentions and we get that moral grayness in ways that we rarely see with the ways that the other characters in the Marvel Universe lionize him. I completely agree, Ed. It humanizes him way more, and that's very much to his favor. Absolutely. Well, the heroes have won. Polaris is now free, and she's also shrunk down and doesn't have the super strength anymore, and we'll find out she has her magnetic powers back for reasons. Yeah, this is this is definitely the Teflon status quo reasserting itself. And confusingly, Logan comforts the distraught Jubilee. I mean, she was possessed and feels pretty weird about that. And the professor, sure enough, can't walk anymore. It appears if I am ever to achieve my dream, I will need all of you to walk me there. So this is a continuity reset. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. But at least it's a thematically touching continuity reset. I think Nicieza really does get the emotional component of this quite well. Although, again, I will complain repetitively about representations of disability in X-Men and say, you know, Xavier, you have access to really good assistive technology. And yeah, this is, uh, I just, I want, I, I just want disability to be across the board ha- handled better than it is here. Um, So you remember the New Warriors? They were in the Kings of Pain crossover. We didn't really talk about it, but there's a character named Silhouette who uses, like, uh, crutches and she uses them in combat and she's super Mm -hmm. awesome. And that is pretty badass. I haven't read enough New New Warriors to be able to effectively comment on that, but it it is cool to see. Right? So a couple things. First of all, Xavier's in a wheelchair again. This is for the first time since Uncanny X-Men number 167, more than 100 issues ago. People forget how long he was walking around. Also... The sewer wizard from the Morlocks? He's totally on Muir Island. Why couldn't he have fixed this? He was, like, right there. Well, this is a very special type of injury. This is what is known as a continuity injury and or a status quo injury. And these injuries are functionally unhealable by means that exist within current continuity. Right. Well, that brings us to X-Factor number 70, Ends and Odds, which is the epilogue to the Muir Island saga, and also the first issue that Peter David is going to write of X-Factor. He's going to write for 30 issues and then for even longer in the 2000s and 2010s. Yeah, this is the pivot point issue of X-Factor. This is the one after the old X-Factor has effectively ceased to be X-Factor, but just before we get the new team, which is going to be David's primary team introduced. Uh, The artist, however, is a fill-in artist. He's a dude named Kirk Jarvanen. I don't know much about him, but I like his style. It's a clean, if heavily inked, kind of cartoony style. I think it works pretty well. Yeah, I think it it very much evokes Sylvester in ways that I really like. It's got a lot of the same same stylistic conceits, but the lines are much cleaner. Yeah, it's not nearly as sketchy. And speaking of art, the cover is done by Mike Mignola. It's got all the different heroes, but X-Factor are in the center and they're in color and all the X-Men are in gray in the background. And this being X-Factor's last like original issue, I think that works so well. That's been done a ton of times, most recently and most notably, I think, on, on X-Men 600. But it really never stops working. This is, this is also sort of the heyday of the Mignola covers. Oh, God. If you're not familiar with Mike Mignola listeners, he's the guy that created Hellboy, and he is one of the greatest comics artists alive. He's just so freaking good. 
But back in the story... So we start, I think, in Legion's head. We've got Xavier walking through a gray void, calling for his son, until he finds a payphone hovering in the air. He takes the phone, he dials zero, and he gets an operator. Hello, you've reached the brain of David Holler. There's no one here to take your call right now. Please leave a message and we'll get back to you. Meanwhile, in Meet Space, in the physical world, Scott, Jean, Storm, Moran, Wolverine are watching over Xavier's body, wishing that he had taken even the slightest bit of time to recover before diving back into Legion's head. It is kind of jarring and also kind of refreshing to see the non-evil, less sexy Moira McTaggart again. She's just, like, wearing a lab coat, being nice. It's been ages. I really wish she'd kept the rad fur cape. I'm sure she still has it. She brings it out for special occasions. Most of those occasions involve Banshee, and maybe the occasional special friend that they uh, bring home with them. Aw, oh, man. I really love that. Like, Banshee and Moira kind of feel like the the middle-aged couple that you're really glad to know still have a super active, weird love life. Absolutely. Like, I know we keep bringing this up on the show, but, like, we're both 35. Okay. We're kind of getting up okay. there, so I it's wanna point out. I want to point out that we had to cut a previous version of this because Miles forgot how old I was. I totally did. You've been in New York for so long. The thing is, there's great precedent for this because my parents accidentally skipped 34. They just went from 33 to 35 by accident, and then they had to do it twice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we, we have. there's a long history of evidence being kind of ambiguous on their ages. Well, anyway, Banshee and Moira getting freaky aside, at least briefly, Moira yells at Wolverine for not caring about Xavier's permanent injury and also yells at Wolverine for him to put out his damn cigarette, at which point Logan swallows it and leaves. Yeah, that, that was my next issue preview image, actually, because it's, it's, it's a really great sequence. Like, it's weird and it's kind of freaky, but it's a very good character moment. What's also really good character-wise is the dialogue here. Peter David is excellent at characterization and excellent at dialogue, and that really comes through, as Cyclops says. You know, I keep hearing he's changed, but ask me, that guy's as nuts as he ever was. And Gene responds. Oh, didn't you see how he smirked at you, Scott? He just wanted to keep you off balance. Gives him a feeling of control. He prefers it that way. That's fine if you're facing an enemy, but your allies. To which Storm adds. Perhaps that's not how he regards you. What then? A rival, maybe? And yeah, this dialogue, like, it works. It's true to the characters, but it also has, like, a bounce to it. It has a life to it that's super engaging. Yeah. Peter David is very, very good at dialogue. He's actually, he's a writer who I think is very much in the same vein as Brian Bendis and Simon Spurrier in that he's got terrific banter, terrific dialogue rhythm, but such a distinct voice that it sometimes overrides the characters. Totally. One thing that jumps out at me here, though, is that in this table-clearing era, as we're going back to the basics, once again, the Cyclops-Wolverine rivalry, which I've never been a fan of, that is immediately back as soon as the characters are in the same room together. Ugh. Archangel, meanwhile, flies high above the island and its scattered mutants. Look at this mess. For that matter, look at all of us. All of us so spread out. We've gotten so far away from each other. And what Professor X started out to do in the first place. Even the island isn't what it was. Now it's blown into opposing crescent shapes. The beginning and end of a cycle. Real estate is metaphor. How lovely. God, the dialogue, we keep coming back to it, but this issue is just so engaging, especially after the mess that the bulk of the Muir Island saga has been. This is just refreshing. One of the things that's refreshing about it, I think, is that we've got a strong voice. I mentioned that, that David can occasionally 
be a little bit too much of a voice as an author. But at the same time, what we've been seeing for the last few issues is Fabian Nicesa trying really hard to write like someone else, which again, he's a writer who I really enjoy, but trying to pick up someone else's slack kind of has him reading like Claremont Light. And one of the things that's defined the X books, I think more than even the individual voices behind them for the last many, many years is strong and consistent authorial voice. So even if it's not the same voice here, having that back makes this feel a lot more like an X book. It also makes me really excited about the fact that we're going to be covering Peter David's X-Factor run super soon. Yeah, I am very, very fond of that era of X-Factor. Me too. Now, below, Beast is quoting from Yates, as is his way, ending with, The best lack conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And Beast's point in all of this is that the X-teams have got to figure their shit out at this point in their history. He's not wrong. Colossus, meanwhile, is trying to figure out how to helm the cleanup efforts. He asks Forge if maybe there's some tech that can assist... And Forge hands him a broom and a dustpan because, yup, this is definitely Peter David's sense of humor. Wah, wah. I feel like you can almost hear the rim shots as you're reading a Peter David comic. Seriously. But the dude does drama well also because an unreceptive rogue is approached by Mystique. Her mom each thought the other was dead until this adventure. Mystique is also accompanied by Val Cooper and Nick Fury. We should point out, by the way, that Rogue once again has a new costume. We're five for five in terms of, of costumes to issues of the Muir Island saga. Also in this issue, Siren is wearing the blue gold X-Men uniform for the first time, and Moira is back in that amazing Scottish chieftain fashionista outfit. Oh, hell yes. Right? So... Mystique and Val Cooper, right? Way back in Uncanny X-Men number 266, months ago, the Shadow King possessed Val was about to shoot and kill Mystique, but she had enough willpower to turn the gun on herself, which grazed her skull and knocked her the hell out. Mystique tells this story. And Rogue responds, You were going to kill yourself rather than let yourself be forced to kill someone else? And Val replies, Yeah, well, that's why they pay me the big money. Val Cooper is such a badass. I love her. Yeah, man. Val Cooper is morally very gray, but a stone-cold badass, she absolutely is. Mystique says that, you know, she followed this up by contacting the only government guy she actually trusted, Nick Fury, to which Fury responds, of course. That's why they pay me the big money. S.H.I.E.L.D. then hypnotized the willing Mystique to believe that she was Val so that they could fool the Shadow King because, of course, he's telepathic. And Fury was subsequently able to wake a Mystique with a code word when the time was right, which we never saw, but whatever. And the code word, word we learn was rogue, which I think was a really bad idea, given how much the Shadow King pontificates about killing the X-Men. Oh, yeah, that could have been timed very poorly. Good point. Maybe it specifically had to be Fury who said it. Maybe, but either way, Rogue is furious because Mystique let Rogue think that Mystique was dead. She thought her mom was dead. And Mystique points out that this is precisely the same thing that Rogue did to her, to which Rogue, because she's that kid, responds, That was different! And Mystique replies, It always is. So instead of being angry about not being dead, can't we just be happy about being alive? 
and they hug. I love Rogue and Mystique's dynamic. I love this mother-daughter who are estranged like 51% of the time and care deeply about each other the other 49%. That works. That's good drama. That's good emotion. And I wish we saw more of it. Yeah, you know what? Actually, this this kind of makes me wish. What's that? That we saw Mystique and Xavier played as parallels more in this area because Mystique is so interesting as this morally gray, flawed, but very sincere parent figure. And when we see Xavier in that capacity, I think that's when he's at his most interesting and by far his most sympathetic when he's played again that way instead of as, as some kind of paragon. And in turn, that makes me wish we got to see more about that aborted timeline where Xavier and Mystique were married that was referenced in Brian Bendis' run. I sort of like to think of that as the most dysfunctional timeline. Oh, it totally would be. Speaking of dysfunction, we cut to Jubilee and Wolverine. Jubilee is furious at Wolverine saying, they're a team, damn it. I want to go to Jubilee's specific line because it's kind of amazing. We're a team, like Batman and Robin. Siegfried and Roy. And she has a bunch of other examples as she shoots fireworks everywhere. Yeah, but playing those two specifically as parallels is, is an interesting choice. Now I'm just imagining Siegfried and Roy dressed as Batman and Robin, which is surprisingly easy to do. Did Batman and Robin have a bunch of pet tigers? I mean, they had Ace the Bat Hound. That's not a tiger. But this scene is weird because it seems like Wolverine just gave Jubilee the news that she's off the X-Men. And indeed, we're not going to see her in X-Men Volume 2 for a few issues. But, like, that doesn't even make sense with current continuity. She's been running around with Wolverine in his solo book this entire time. So maybe this was just some confusion editorially. I'm not really sure. Maybe she's specifically upset because she wants to train tigers with Wolverine and has learned that that's not going to be happening. I'm going to say that's definitely canon and 100% accurate, so we're going to go with that. Also hanging out, and speaking of characters who haven't had much interaction in, in books but are about to, we've got Polaris and Guido, who will eventually have the codename Strong Guy. Right, Polaris is cleaning up the wreckage of the research facility with her suddenly returned magnetic powers while wearing the tiny one-piece version of the X uniform we've seen her in, talking about how everything just feels off and stiff now that her powers have transitioned. And I, I don't have the dialogue on hand, but it's very obviously Peter David actively lampshading the way she's posed in the art, which is a ridiculous, ridiculous, entirely unnatural pinup pose. Yeah, so she gets it pretty quickly, but I like the way this is handled. Like, they're flirting in a friendly fashion that's clearly consensual. And I gotta say, consensual flirting is a very refreshing thing to be reading about right now. It's also something that kind of makes me wish that we'd seen more of Strong Guy as a fourth wall breaker. Yeah, I completely agree. He does it really well. But Polaris is talking about how she had a haven on Muir Island. The place was intellectual and peaceful, and now it's destroyed, and she doesn't really know what she's going to do with her life. Yeah, Polaris, it's worth noting, you know, we, we harp on havoc about this all the time, but Polaris is basically in the same boat. She is the graduate student who was perpetually thwarted in her attempts to finish her dissertation research by superhero bullshit. Exactly. I mean, she got possessed by Malice, the marauder, for a long time even, so it was like even worse for her than for Havoc in a lot of ways. Oh man, she's, it's, I'm, I'm trying to think of what the possession equivalent of she gets kidnapped so much she should have a handle is. I don't know. But she should have one of those, whatever it is. And Val Cooper approaches. Val, of course, was the government liaison with Freedom Force, the team of mutants who was working for the government, composed of reformed supervillains. And 
she wants to start a new team. Now, she doesn't mention that the reason she wants a new team is that the old team was almost entirely killed in the backup story of Kings of Pain called The Killing Stroke, but uh, we the readers know that. Yeah, and this is going to be the new X Factor eventually. But before then, Xavier still has to finish working his way through David's mind. Um, He's going along, monologuing as he goes. This place is bizarre. Like, he's jumping from stairs floating in space into a floating house full of a bunch of lamps. But he points out, real life has been pretty bizarre, too. I come back from my time in space, and what do I find? Jean miraculously back from the dead. Warren mutated into something barely recognizable. Scott in mourning for a son I didn't know he had, and a wife that he apparently never did. I gotta say, Charles Xavier is way more concise at summarizing this stuff than we are. Yeah, that's because he doesn't have to actually explain it. Jean Grey shows up psychically and tells Xavier, dude, David is gone. The stuff in this void is all stuff that you're subconsciously creating. None of this is from David. I'm sorry, Professor, but your son, he's not there anymore. And with her are the rest of X-Factor, the rest of Xavier's original students, telling him, David is gone, yes, but we still need you. We're still alive, and we could really use you right now. Beast brings it back once again to Yates, saying that without Xavier's vision... The center cannot hold... And the conversation passes back and forth, a phrase going to each person to form a longer sentence. This is very Peter David, but it works because this is a family. These are people that can finish each other's... Sandwiches! Right. (laughs) X-Factor sadly tells Xavier that the results are in medically. He's no longer going to be able to walk, ever. And And Xavier points out that as a comic book character, appropriately, he really doesn't believe in this whole never concept. And with that, finally, he wakes back up. He's all right. And there's a great page of the phrase, he's all right, passing from one hero to another to another through the halls of what's left of the research facility. Including one of my favorite creepy gambit moments. Oh, yeah, it's just his face lit by a cigarette coming out of the shadows, saying that phrase, and Polaris looking super startled. It's pretty good. And just going, eep! And, of course, Madrox passes it along among his many dupes from one to another to another, because I always got the impression that Multiple Man is like the character embodiment of Peter David's sense of humor. And Xavier closes the issue with a kind of great moment. You know, there, there are callbacks that do and don't work, And this is, I think, one of my favorites, and in a lot of ways, the only appropriate way to end this era, because it's a callback to the very end of Giant Size X-Men number one. You were correct. The center cannot hold. And so a new center must be established. My only question now is, what am I going to do with 14 X-Men? Okay, so I agree. I love this callback. It works really well because we are entering into a brand new era of X-Men. But I do have to object because, A, there are 15 heroes in this issue, not 14. And also, that's not counting the characters that don't show up. Banshee, Psylocke, Siren, Amanda Sefton, Tom Corsi, and Sharon Friedlander. On the other hand, miscounting the number of X-Men you have around is a really totally appropriate lead into the 1990s. It's true. And speaking of, well, the 80s, the era that's leading into the 90s, let's talk a little about what led up to this. Because, yes, this is the 
end of the 80s, but it's also the end of a great big run of story that basically started in Uncanny X-Men number 200 and ends right here. I mean, longer even if we're talking about the entire Claremont run, that's like 17 years. It is, but like we already summarized most of that in uh, at the end of our first year. Right, so let's look, I guess, specifically from Uncanny X-Men number 200, that's the Trial of Magneto, through the end of the Muir Island Saga, which is what we've just covered today. And we're not going to go into a point by point. I mean, we have a whole podcast for that. But I want to talk a little bit about each era and sort of what worked and what stood out. When you say era, you're, you're basically grouping this stuff by major story arcs, yeah? And I noticed that as I was taking notes, as I was writing this part of the outline, that I'm kind of writing it around big crossovers. And I'm not saying that all the important mm -hmm. story happens in big crossovers, but those do tend to be the plot turning points. Yeah, well, that's the shift that we see around Trial of Magneto, because across the first chunk of Claremont's run, what we see is the X-Men going from sort of a marginal book to the center of Marvel's line. And as such, yeah, it becomes paced around events and crossovers in ways that it really wasn't before. And it's interesting that as it does that, Xavier leaves because Xavier is off in space for freaking ages from this point. We have Magneto running the school. We have Cyclops leaving the team. We have Storm taking over. Uh, we also have the new, new Mutants sort of going into their second era with Magneto as headmaster and the return of Jean Grey and the formation of X-Factor, kind of the first really big retcon. And X-Factor takes a little bit of time to find its footing. I mean, it really doesn't start doing so, in my opinion, until Louise Simonson starts writing. But in terms of especially New Mutants, I love this. Magneto has this rocky, almost angry relationship with his students that still has at its core love and concern and respect. And for me, that was always fascinating. This is the era of X-Men, the one we're talking about right now with Xavier first in space, right after Cyclops has left again for Alaska, when, when Magneto's headmaster, that for me really feels like Claremont's vision of a dynamic X-Universe realized. This is the point where things are absolutely not as they were and where we've seen shakeups to the status quo that are not only introduced, but actually stick with some degree of tenacity. And speaking of status quo shakeups, I mean, we go from here into the first X-Men crossover, the Mutant Massacre. Right. So we've got um, Colossus, Kitty, and Nightcrawler injured and leaving the team that's going to lay the groundwork later for Excalibur. And also for a ton of roster changes on the X-Men. I mean, this is where we start building the team that I usually think of as the Australia team. Right. Uh, this is also, you mentioned it as the first X crossover. And it's the first time, I think, that X-Men really feels connected to the larger Marvel universe. We have um, the New Mutants and the X-Men, actually, in Asgard. We have Mirage becoming a Valkyrie. We've got, you know, maybe maybe this isn't specific to this era. Maybe this is really heralded by Jean Grey returning in a Fantastic Four issue. I think so, yeah. I mean, a Fantastic Four issue and an Avengers issue before X-Factor even starts. And that's cool. That works. I mean, I like the X-Men when they're kind of mostly doing their own thing, but when they're still clearly inhabitants of the Marvel Universe. And in the Mutant Massacre itself, we have Thor crossover, we have Power Pack crossover, we have little references here and there all over the place, and it works. We've also got the groundwork for a lot of stuff that's going to come later. That's another thing that's really, really notable about this entire era is that everything feeds together. We've made the it's always Inferno in here jokes. And I think the reason we're able to keep harping on that so effectively and for so long is that, you know, Claremont starts seeding those stories. Claremont and Simonson really start seeding those stories so early and develop them so organically over so long. And we see their, their fallout over so long that setting discrete arcs and discrete eras almost feels arbitrary. I totally agree, yeah. 
But at the same time, you gotta organize stuff somehow. I mean, we need our uh, bullet points, both metaphorical and literal. So you mentioned that X Factor feels kind of shaky at first. And for me, the point where X Factor as a team really clicks is the next big event. That's the fall of the mutants. Oh, God, I love the fall of the mutants. I mean, for X-Factor, you know, that's when they find out that Angel, who got injured in the mutant massacre and had his wings amputated and seems to attempt to kill himself successfully, in fact, in a plane crash, in fact, Apocalypse, X-Factor's big villain from early on, found him and turned him into the Horseman of Death. I mean, what a freaking reveal. Like, yeah, we get little bits and pieces, so it's not a big surprise when it actually happens, but goddamn, that was huge. I talked about the trial of Magneto era as the era when the X-Men felt most dynamic. And for me, the Mutant Massacre era is when X-Factor really comes into their own, when they stop existing in the shadow of their past with Xavier and start to really come to terms with who they've grown up to become. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we get a lot of the X-Factor status quo here with Angel as Archangel, with them living in ship, with them coming out as public heroes, and that's kind of what X-Factor is in my mind. I mean, you know, the X-Factor that consisted of the original five, not the upcoming Peter David written team. We've also at this point got the New Mutants taking, you know, not their first major loss because they thought Karma was dead for a while, but the first one that's really stuck, and that is the death of Doug Ramsey. At the same time that Louise Simonson has taken over just a bit before, we finally have a second writer doing the X-Line regularly. And bringing us to the saddest story ever told. For serious. Now, I think it did take Louise Simonson a little while to find her sea legs with the New Mutants. Like, at first, the characters seem way too young, and the jarring shift to Brett Blevins's extremely cartoony art style just exaggerates that. But once Blevins and Simonson get on their game after maybe a dozen or so issues, New Mutants becomes, I would say, easily as good as it was during Claremont's run. Yeah, I would say that those two as a team are really, really going to come into their own during the next arc. But before that, I kind of want to talk about what we've sort of skirted around here. And that is the major defining event of Fall of the Mutants, which is the apparent death of the X-Men in Dallas. Yeah, I mean, technically they literally die. It's just that they then get resurrected by the daughter of Merlin, as happens. Excellent point. But that would herald an era that people forget how long it was. I mean, the X-Men were dead. The world thought they were dead for freaking ages. We just covered the Excalibur issues where Excalibur finally figures out that the X-Men have been alive this whole time. The X, well, the X-Men were dead, apparently dead for a long time, but the latter parts of that felt real forced in, in defense of people forgetting. Totally true. But that being said, this era did give us the X-Men in Australia, one of my very favorite eras of X-Men, mainly because I just love the bizarre lineup of the team. I mean, freaking Longshot, like Havoc is on the team all of a sudden, in love with Madeline Pryor, like there's, there's no Cyclops, Wolverine's gone half the time, it was great. Yeah, absolutely. And this is also the era where we saw Mark Silvestri come on as the main artist, which really kind of heralded the the new age of X-Men art that's going to be eventually defined by Jim Lee. Totally, yeah. But all of this, I mean, all of this was building up to one big thing, that being, in my opinion, the best X-Men crossover of all time. Inferno. Yeah. I mean, Uncanny X-Men and X-Factor kind of come together. Madeline Pryor finds out that Mr. Sinister created her. She turns into the Goblin Queen. Well, Mr. Sinister also comes into his own as a major villain. We'd seen him only peripherally until this point, and this is really where he steps into the spotlight. He does. If by spotlight you mean Cyclops' optic blasts, which freaking disintegrate him after the school is blown up in the battle. Arguably also a spotlight, if a significantly more destructive than usual spotlight. 
right? And so that's the end of this plot line that had been building since X-Factor number one when Jean Grey came back. This is also a point where the crossovers grow. And I mean, they're really growing through, through this entire era. So we see very limited ones in the Mutant Massacre era. Much larger as we get into Fall of the Mutants, we see them bleeding into more of the Marvel Universe and spreading still further in Inferno, which I love because Inferno is one of the events where we get to see something really weird going on. We get to see a lot of different creative teams and a lot of different books' tones interpreting sort of the same basic motifs, which gives us such memorable and iconic moments as Daredevil getting his ass kicked by a vacuum cleaner. Right. But for me, the highlight of Inferno, as much as I love the Madeline Pryor and Mr. Sinister stuff, and I really, really do, is New Mutants. The story that had been building for just as long was Ilyana Rasputin's battle within herself. Was she going to be good? Was she going to be evil? Was she going to overcome her horrible upbringing and the demonic forces that she'd been forced to draw upon? And as it turns out, the answer to all of those questions is yes. Right. And the way that it was such a Pyrrhic victory, the way that Ilyana managed to save the day but lost who she was it worked so well it was just so poignant it's one of my favorite deaths in comics even though it's not exactly a death and it led to a huge status quo shift for the new mutants this also ends magneto's involvement with the new mutants um who also pick up uh x-factor's wards in the process right now boom boom's on the team i feel great about that everything is better with boom boom basically as long as you don't mind it being exploded yeah, I was going to say, maybe not libraries. <laughs> right. Now, when does Cable show up in all of this? He shows up a little bit before the next big event. The New Mutants are on their own without a leader, without a rudder, and Editorial thought they needed a new third mentor, and thus, Cyborg from the future. The dude with the cool scar who would later be retconned to be Nathan Christopher Charles Ascani's son, whatever the fuck, Summers, the kid of um, Cyclops and Madeline Pryor. But eventually the teams all did have to finally, finally meet up, and so we had the most recent crossover where we are, the Extinction Agenda. At this point, the uncanny X-Men were scattered all over the world, and, and all over in general, because they've gone through the Siege Perilous, and many of their memories had been rewritten. In Rogue's case, she'd literally been split into two people, and their stories were basically fractured. Uncanny X-Men was a book that focused on, you know, ones or twos of them at most for a pretty long time. And I have such mixed feelings about this. I mean, I love seeing Claremont do radical departures. I love seeing the stories progress and characters grow and change. But this was a book called Uncanny X-Men where there were no Uncanny X-Men. There was no team. There was just people scattered all the hell over the place. It was cool. I think it may have gone on for a little too long, but I don't know. What do you think, Jay? I think it works much better within the context of the art of the larger X line than it does in isolation. Having the X-Men scattered like that works fairly well in a world where you've got two other X teams running around at the same time. But if that's the only X book you're following, I could see it being really frustrating. I think so, yeah. And it wouldn't surprise me if this was the direct cause of Jim Lee and Bob Harris wanting the X-Line to get more traditional because it had gotten so untraditional. Which, again, I think is one of its strengths. I've, I've talked about this over and over and over again, but I think the X-Line is at by far its best when there are a couple simultaneous titles running and when there's room for a lot of experimentation and for, for a fairly divergent set of books. 
Now, X Factor went off to space for the underappreciated classic The Judgment War with glorious art by Paul Smith. Fuck yeah. And they got back to join the extinction agenda in the anti-mutant nation of Genosha. We had a nice action story and some good metaphor stuff going on. And they finally got to defeat Cameron Hodge again, but not for the last time, because he's Cameron Hodge and he never, ever goes away. For X Factor... Extinction Agenda led directly into Endgame, the wrap-up of Louise Simonson's run on the book, and the final actual solidification of what would eventually become one of the greatest retcons in X-Men history, the reveal of baby Nathan Christopher as the kid who was going to grow up into badass gunslinger Cable. And that basically leads us into the Muir Island saga. Pretty soon, X-Men Volume 2 is going to start. Uncanny X-Men is going to get a new lineup. Uh, New Mutants are going to become X-Force. X-Factor is going to have its new team. Like, 1991 was a big freaking deal. Everything changed. Eventually, I think the changes worked out pretty well, but it's going to be a little rocky at first. But you know what remains consistent through all eras of X-Men, and in fact, all eras of this podcast? What's that, Jay? You've got questions. Jeremy Jones asks on Twitter... What is X-Campus exactly? What do you guys think of it? Oh my god. Miles, have have you read X-Campus? I have not. I've heard of it. All right. So imagine if X-Men Evolution was made in 2008. Okay. By a bunch of Europeans. Uh Uh-huh. As a comic book. Gotcha. With heavily manga-influenced art. And a plot that is just utterly batshit ridiculous. um, As, in fact, we referred to in the cold open of episode 103. Okay, yeah, I remember seeing, like, there was an X-Men manga, and so I guess that must be this. No, that is entirely different. Oh, there are two X-Men mangas, one of which is a manga and the other of which actually isn't. This isn't manga, this just has vaguely manga-influenced art. So this is is a comic that came out initially, I believe, in France in 2008, was translated and came to the U.S. in 2010. It's basically a mini-series, and yeah, it's it's X-Men re-envisioned as a high school with hijinks and a really uncomfortable subplot where Professor X makes a teenage gene pretend to be an adult that reads this deeply creepy in context of 616 revelations about his feelings for her. But in general, I remember it being pretty fun, if not all that remarkable. Like, I don't think it's a great loss not to have read it, but it doesn't feel like a terrible waste of time to have either. It's kind of pleasantly neutral. Okay, so Jay, you know my taste, you know what I like and what I don't. Should I read this? I know your tastes, but I know that above all, you are an obsessive completist. So obviously the answer here is going to be yes. On to the list it goes. All right, what else do we have? All right, um, so an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, what are your thoughts on the Jean Grey comics leading to the resurrection of adult Jean Grey? And on top of that, what are your thoughts on Xavier not being truly dead, but battling the Shadow King in the astral plane? Why can't we let these characters go? That is a damned fine question, Anonymous. Okay, so me, I'm okay with resurrection when it fits. The Shadow King, I think that fits. He's canonically very, very difficult to kill, and the threat he offers is generally both interesting and also fits well with the themes of the X-Men. But Xavier and Jean Grey, I mean, I feel like their arcs ended well. And we even got follow-up to both. I mean, some were good, like Jean Grey's White Phoenix stuff, and some were bad, like the Red Skull stealing Xavier's brain out of his corpse. But for both of them, bringing them back feels unnecessary. They had their arc. So I somewhat disagree with this. I think Xavier staying dead makes absolute sense. But Jean Grey, first of all, is a character who's been defined largely somewhat through canon and somewhat just through associated reputation by death and resurrection, 
but also by her relationship to other versions of herself. And while I will absolutely acknowledge that the resurrection feels forced, I'm almost okay with it because it gives us an opportunity to see these versions of Jean, you know, the teenager whose life has been defined by popping into this, this future universe where she is dead and where her death has been a universe defining experience, you know, with the dead adult Jean Grey, who again has, has been defined largely by her very uneasy relationship with the fact that there are multiple versions of her running around and her, her gradual reconciliation with that. You know, that is actually a really compelling argument. And I think you're kind of changing my mind, especially since the Jean Grey solo book about young Jean Grey written by Dennis Hopeless. I mean, that's what it's turned out to be about, about her directly interacting not only with her legacy, but with like the person she was worried about growing into. So I feel more okay about that. I think part of it is just that like, I really respect it when characters actually stay dead. And Jean's been dead for what, like 13 years in real time? Yeah. Um, the one other thing that I've got to admit I'm sort of hoping for in this is that the title and the conceit of it sort of maybe kind of provides a potential avenue for bringing back my favorite Cyclops. Although, I don't know, he's really good dead too. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we know Cyclops will eventually be back. Do we? At least they're not bringing back everybody at the same time. Just Logan and adult Gene. Okay, I am actually really angry that Logan's coming back. Reasonable. The main thing, though, so adult Gene is going to be the leader of X-Men Red, mm -hmm. which makes me wonder, are we going to have adult Gene as the leader of X-Men Red and young Gene as the leader of X-Men Blue? That would be interesting. I think I would be pretty cool with that. I feel like Jean Grey burns the Marvel Universe to a radioactive crisp is an event that has been a long, long time in the coming. Fair enough. But anyway, regardless, it's comics. We know that damn near everybody is going to come back. I mean, I just feel like we should cross our fingers and hope that it at least ends up being a good story. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, things cycle back in and out, and that to some extent is inevitable. I'd just like to see it done in interesting ways, which given the creators on the team and given the ways that it's been handled so far, I'm actually pretty optimistic about this time. Yeah, me too. Now, Jane Miles Explain the X-Men is a fully listener-supported podcast, and one of the things that comes with certain levels of support is on-air acknowledgement by various fictional characters and or concepts. It would not be an episode of Jane Miles Explain the X-Men without the angry Claremontian narrator. Once, Joe Burns... You were able to maintain the illusion that the world was simple, that good and evil were straightforward, and that you were on the side of good. But now, as you return to a world changed almost beyond recognition, you are forced to wonder, has the future left you behind? Is there a place for you in the world of Bob Allen? And really, do you want there to be? And now, while you might think this would go to the Shadow King, we're actually going back to the classic ex-antagonist. I am turning the mic over here today to Magneto. Not only were Banshee, Psylocke, and others forgotten in Charles Xavier's accounting of the ending of this conflict, but so was I, Magneto, the master of magnetism. After all Charles and I have been through, our brief partnership in Israel, my trial in Paris, our defeat of Wolfie and alliance with Kalani Tamura, and endless 
slash fiction online, I too was forgotten. Such injustice is the price of allowing Homo sapiens to pen these tales. Yet another method by which they oppress their betters, Homo superior! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is totally listener-supported. Thanks, listeners! If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Miles takes a long-awaited vacation. As Jay and Ed Pisker talk about condensing decades of continuity into X-Men Grand Design. (laughs) 